0: the book of Revelation. Continuing in chapter 2, verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we thank you once again. Truly, O Lord, you are good to your people. You are marvelous in all your ways, and we marvel at your kindness to us. Thank you, O Heavenly Father, gracious God, for the benevolence that you showed to us in so many ways, but most importantly, and giving us your Son, Jesus Christ, and the gift of salvation. O Lord, it is also granted to us to suffer for your name's sake. And as we read this text before us, and as we behold uh, what you think of the churches, and what you think of Christianity, O Lord, we are pondering, O Lord, what it means to suffer for you, what it means to be persecuted. I pray that in our own evaluation of ourselves, we would wonder, do we suffer for you, O Lord, and do we suffer well Help us to understand this passage before us. Give us insight and wisdom into your word and may it conform us into the image of your beloved Son in whose name we pray. And Lord, we ask that you would also give me divine unction at my mind and my heart and my lips would be empowered by your Holy Spirit. Carry me forth, O Lord, to be a divine mouthpiece for you in Jesus' name, amen. So we begin today with this second church in the circuit of the churches of Revelation, the Church of Smyrna, the Church of Smyrna, and it is um, it is the second church. It is about thirty five to forty miles north of Ephesus, approximately. It's on the coast. It's another port city, similar to Ephesus, and an arrival city. Uh, the city of Smyrna is known as the jewel of Asia in the ancient world due to its uh, luxurious coast and luxurious uh, setting. A lot of people live there who um, who are very wealthy. It's a very attractive place to live. The climate is very nice. I would consider it maybe the Malibu uh, or the French Riviera of the ancient world. It is a it is a very nice place. Uh, but it isn't a nice place for our Christians to live. And as we read in our passage, there the Christians there are suffering. And if we look at the church of Ephesus, the Lord had words for them both of commendation and correction. And here in the church of Smyrna, the Lord has no words of correction, but only those of commendation and encouragement. If the mark of the first church was love, and that was the important thing that needed to be emphasized, and truly the mark of a true Christian church, a gospel-affirming church, is the mark of love, then the second mark would be that of suffering. If there is a true mark of Christianity, is that God's people suffer, and they suffer with Christ. Now, let it be known that since the birth of the Church Age and beginning with Christ himself, Christians have always historically suffered more than any other religion in the world. Now, although I know the Jews suffered horribly in the Holocaust, and I know other religions suffer horrible discrimination in different parts of the world, historically speaking, and to the day, no religion has suffered more persecution than the Christian faith. You go into the early church in the first 300 years under the Roman Empire, the Christians suffered unimaginable horrors under the Roman Empire. Under the medieval church and the Inquisition, one can only uh, imagine what happened with all the devices in the the evil contrived by the Roman Catholic Church in persecuting those who deviated. Under the Reformation in England and Europe, many Christians suffered. Uh, During the French Revolution, and of course, which served as a model for Marxist revolutions, Christians continued to suffer. The 20th century was probably the worst, where an estimate of 26 million Christians died for their faith. According to researchers, more Christians were martyred in the 20th century than all 19 centuries prior. You look at Stalin and Hitler and Pol Pot and Franco, and you just have a record long of Christian suffering. The 21st century is shaping up to look even worse. According to statistics in Open Doors USA, 360 million Christians around the world today are experiencing high levels of persecution and discrimination. To the date in the year 2022, 5,898 Christians have lost their lives for the sake of Christ. and that's only what we know. Over 5,000 church buildings have been burned to the ground or destroyed. Can you I have a slide that I put in there. Um, can you bring up, look at that church. Just to give you an example, this happened in French Guyana. According, I read this in the Christian Post two days ago. The pastor of this church, the pastor's name is, is uh, 44-year-old Callow, Pastor A. Callow of Gatto Lobby Church in St. Laurent du Maroni, and was a member of the Guyana branch of the National Council of Evangelicals in France. Um, radicals came in, shot him dead, shot his two sons, and burned the church to the ground. And that's the church there. In Sudan this week, a married couple is facing 100 lashes from a cat and nine tails. Why? Because the husband, his name is Hamouda Kafi, converted to Christianity from Islam. Under Islamic law, if you convert to Christianity, it is an illegitimate marriage, and therefore they are accused of adultery. And him and his wife, who will not recant, are facing 100 lashes, which will surely kill them. 4,700 Christians around the world have been arrested and detained without trial. Now, this is an uncomfortable truth that we have to look at, but I can go on and on and on with the stories. Get a copy of The Voice of Martyrs, go to Open Doors USA, And it's important, and I think it's healthy for us to understand what other Christians around the world are suffering from just being a Christian, just for exercising their faith, just for owning a Bible, just for going to church. Perhaps today we are very ignorant of these things. For example, in Afghanistan, American forces, since they've withdrawn from Afghanistan a few months ago, the Taliban has made a list of every Christian convert in Afghanistan and are going door to door, dragging them out of their houses, demanding that they can recant of their Christianity or die. Nothing is being done to stop it. North Korea, which was at the top of the list for many years, uh, have some of the most extreme forms of punishment. People are brought into concentration camps and they are tortured and beaten until they recant of Christ. Children are taught to turn in their parents. But by far, the worst offender right now in the world, the worst place to be a Christian, according to Open Doors USA, is Nigeria. Nigerian Christians are suffering the worst of any Christian people in the world. Um, since there's been a formed a coalition with Boko Haran, Fulani Herdsman, and ISWAP, and result, 81 million Christians in Nigeria have been forced to leave their homes 4,650 of those 5,898 deaths that I mentioned earlier took place in Nigeria. That's approximately 13 people a day. I've spoken to Kautume and the fear among Christians is is palpable. People go to church on Sunday and don't know who's going to come into the building, mow them down with a machine gun, uh, raise their homes, pillage and plunder. It is not safe to be a Christian in Nigeria. So what do we say to this? I know as we sit here, we say, why? Why is this happening? If God loves us and he's powerful and he's sovereign, why does he allow his people to suffer? Well, you you have on the surface the basic answers, right? People who have authoritarian rule feel threatened by those who worship one higher, or uh, you have radical extremist religions, Uh, like radical Islam, but the bigger question we should be asking is not why are these people being persecuted, the bigger question we should be asking is why aren't we being persecuted? Why aren't we being persecuted? Why are we so comfortable? And perhaps the answer will make us more uncomfortable, it's because we as Christians compromise. It's because we've made a Faustinian bargain with the world so we can coexist and enjoy our life and be comfortable. We say we cannot afford to be persecuted. But for the 350 million people around the world today who are suffering, they cannot afford to not be persecuted. We have to remember that Christ has called us to follow him and the disciples, not above his master. This leads us to the Church of Smyrna. The persecuted church it is one of the only two churches that Jesus has no rebuke for, and we could see why they are suffering terribly. Now, just to give you a little background, as I already did, Smyrna is a, reputa- has a reputation for being one of the most beautiful cities, um, but it is also known as a city with great architectural beauty and has a heavy pagan influence. Um, It has an imperial cult. It's the center of the imperial cult. And as early as 195 BC, Smyrna became a political ally of Rome and they dedicated a temple in the city to the spirit of Rome, Dea Roma, which eventually became personified in the emperor. And so in Smyrna, there was a large temple that was dedicated to emperor worship, to Caesar worship. In fact, in the if you were resident in Smyrna, you were required. Now, get this: you were required to burn incense once a year to Caesar. And you know what happened when you once you burned the incense, they would give you a certificate as proof that you um, burned incense to Caesar. And without that certificate, you couldn't do anything. Sound familiar? <laughs> All right. And so, without that certificate, you were forced to either sacrifice or you couldn't work. You couldn't trade. You couldn't go to the public market. You were ostracized. You were, you were basically treated like a second-class citizen. And so here we are. We have the church living in this beautiful city, and yet they can't enjoy it. Why? Because they have stayed steadfast to Christ and his word. So hear what, hear what Jesus has to say to them. First, the salutation. He says, I am the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. And as we'll see in this message To each of the churches, Jesus identifies himself with part of chapter 1. And this is direct reference to verses 17 through 18. Now there are two important meanings to this, why Jesus would choose to identify himself as the one who is dead and now comes to life. And that's because Smyrna itself has a reputation as a city that once was dead and now was alive. Having been destroyed several times in history, this was the most recent incarnation, and it earned the title, the city, according to Roman tradition, that was raised from the dead. And so there's a play on words here. But it's also a reminder and encouragement to the Christians there who were facing death, who were facing poverty, who were facing persecution, that they should take courage in their Lord who was also persecuted and killed, but death had no victory over him. His followers needed reassurance that they served a king, that they served a savior who was not dead but very much alive. Amen? And furthermore, they too will share in the resurrection. And so, with that, Christ goes into the evaluation. He goes into the evaluation. And the church is not found with any blemish, but rather, he encourages them. He says, I know, I know what's going on, I know your tribulation and your poverty. Christ knows he's sovereign, he is omniscient, and, and you know one would think, and, and this is something we have to realize, in the midst of suffering and tribulation, we think God is not present, he's not aware of what's going on. God knows exactly what's going on. But he chooses not to intervene for a reason. He says, I know your tribulation. The word tribulation in Greek literally means pressure. It means pressure, heavy pressure, And it means to be oppressed. What the Christians were experiencing here was not merely a trial. A trial is a test of faith. This was intense. It was pressure. And that pressure was to conform to the way of life in Smyrna. Pressure to conform to Caesar worship. Pressure to adopt the way of the world around them or else. No doubt the Christians suffered greatly, and it says, as a result of this tribulation, as a result of this this pressure, they were impoverished. It says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, the two go connected. Obviously, they had refused to offer sacrifices to Caesar, and in their refusal to participate in the pagan festivities, they had excluded themselves from the benefits of living in that society. And so that was a cost they were willing to pay. Now the word here, impoverished, is interesting in the Greek. The the regular word used in the Greek language is panea, and it means you live day by day, paycheck to paycheck. But that's not the word is used here. The word used here is tocheia, and the word tocheia means that you live in abject poverty. This is not just living meal to meal, paycheck to paycheck. These people are destitute. They are broke. And in all likeliness, according to scholars' research, not only were these Christians not able to work, were they excluded, were they blacklisted, were they unable to join trade guilds, but more than likely they were pillaged and plundered too. More than likely, in the hostility of the surrounding pagans, they came into their houses, they robbed them, they took their houses, they threw them out in the street, and they were homeless and penniless. No one had mercy on them. No one would give them an ounce of bread. These were people who had nothing to depend on but the Lord and themselves. It was extremely difficult to be a Christian in Smyrna. On top of that, they had to deal with, as it says here in verse 9, the slander of those who say they are Jews but are not. Smyrna was known to have a large Jewish population And going back to the book of Acts, we have seen the earliest adversary to the Christian church was the Jews. Uh, From city to city that Paul went to, we just finished the book of Acts, his adversaries were not the pagans, they were the Jews. The Jews had utter hostility towards Christianity, and it was no different in Smyrna. And it says here that that they had um, engaged in a a real uh, persecution. And what was their persecution revolving around? Slander. They were constantly painting the Christian church in a bad light, and we saw that going back to the book of Acts. Now, the word slander, again in Greek, is the word diablo, it's where we get the word devil from. You see, the devil is the father of all lies, and so... When the devil speaks a lie, he speaks his native language and that's precisely what the Jews were doing to them, conjuring up lies and fabrications and exaggerations to demonize the church, to vilify the church and align themselves with Rome and find favor with Rome. This should be no surprise, right? Because even in Jesus' public ministry, he was maligned by the Jews. That is why Jesus says here, They are not true Jews, but they're a synagogue of Satan. Here these people are, and they think they're the children of God. They think they're the people of God. And Jesus told them in his own public ministry in John 8.44, you think that Abraham is your father. I got news for you. Your devil is the father. Your father is the devil, rather. And so therefore, they worship not God. They worship Satan. Satan. Paul makes it clear in Romans 2.28 where no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly or circumcision outward and physical but a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit not by the letter. His praise is not from man but from God. See the Jewish people were relying on their ethnic Judaism and that is not what commends someone to God. It is faith in Jesus Christ and faith in him alone. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile doesn't matter. It's the heart that matters. It's faith in Christ that matters. And so Christ can say, these are not my people. They're a synagogue of Satan. After seeing what these Smyrna Christians were going through, one might say, this is terrible. In fact, some of them may have been tempted to give up. What kind of religious is this? I give my life to Christ and all I do is suffer. I lose everything. But that's the case for many people today. I probably said this before but years ago my friend Justin who pastors a church in Toronto when he was in seminary had a man from Pakistan who was going to seminary with him and that man from Pakistan said to him he says you know the difference between Christians in the West and Christians where we are in the Middle East he goes you guys get saved and your life gets better he says we get saved our life gets worse <laughs> everything goes wrong for us our family disowns us we get beaten up we go to jail we lose our jobs But Jesus had the profound assessment to make of the church. In spite of all this, he says, You are rich. You see, wealth is a matter of perspective, isn't it? They lived in a glamorous area. They lived in an area where there was a lot of concentrated wealth. People who lived in Smyrna, it was a very luxurious place, had money. And here they were, living in abject poverty. I've seen that. I've been to places like Aruba, right? Where, where you're on an island, you probably see some. many islands in the Caribbean. You see lu- extravagant luxury at all the resorts, but drive a little inland and you see abject poverty. And this is how it was for the Christians there. They lived amongst all this luxury, and so wealth could be very deceiving, right? Well, they, they're wealthy and we're poor, and Jesus says, no, you are the ones who are rich. You have unfathomable wealth, unfathomable riches. Turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved and raised up with him from the dead, and seated with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Just think of that. You are heirs of the immeasurable riches of Christ. You know what that means? It means as a Christian, no matter... What state in life you're in, no matter how little or how much you have, you're already rich. You have it all. But there's something more to be said. It's also more to be said that Christians who suffer, Christians who are going through this kind of tribulation, this kind of pressure, have a wealth that we don't have. Because everything's been taken from them. They have nothing to distract them from the true treasure they possess, and that is Christ. You see, we're distracted by all the things that we have in this world that pull and tug on our hearts. When you have nothing in life to live for and all you have left is Christ, then you know how wealthy you truly are. And that's the encouragement that He wants to give them. Their riches were spiritual riches. Their wealth was defined not so much in what they possessed materially, but what they possessed spiritually. You see, a persecuted church has an advantage over us. In that a persecuted church, there's no room for false conversions. There's no room for false professions. There's no, you're not going to make a false profession of Christ when you're going to suffer intensely for him. It eliminates all the phony believers. In, in, in a persecuted church, every person is a true believer. Believer. Not only that, but you have a pure church. You have a holy church. When a church is persecuted, there's no room for sin when you're being hunted by the enemy. John MacArthur says this, who's really rich? They had holiness, they had power, they had love, they had joy, they had grace, they had peace, they had True friends. They had a divine resource. They had a sympathetic Savior. They had grace upon grace. They were rich. That's how it is with the persecuted church. Don't you ever feel sorry for the persecuted church? And so what is the exhortation here? Verse 10. We get to the exhortation. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. And so he, he starts with an exhortation to not be afraid. Fear not. And God tells you to fear not. And there's reason to be afraid, isn't there? there look what he says is ahead of him. He doesn't say, notice, he doesn't say, don't worry, don't fear not. I'm going to intervene and I'm going to stop all this. He says, fear not, you're going to go to prison and you're going to die. That's kind of almost like a contradictory phrase, right? No, it's not. Christ is saying, you are going to face more persecution. It's going to get worse. But fear not, I'm with you. That's, That's the reminder. That's the reminder that Jesus told us in Matthew 28. He says, lo and behold, I am with you forever and always, even to the end of the age. Fear not. When Stephen was martyred in Acts chapter 7, it says the heavens opened and he beheld Christ there and it gave him strength to endure the stoning. Throughout church history, we read testimonies of Christians when they're martyred. They experience the presence of God in a very tangible and palpable way who strengthens and encourages them at the moment that they're suffering. It's a grace that we don't understand, but those who have suffered for Christ do. And so he says, fear not for what you're about to suffer. The devil's going to throw some of you in prison. Now, let me make this clear. Prison was not like it is today. Today, you get arrested, you get convicted of a crime, they send you to prison upstate for 30 years or whatever and your time is, and you live amongst some, a bunch of other criminals, and, you know, it's not a pleasant place, right? You don't want to go to prison, Prisons different than jail. Okay? But but in the ancient world, when you got convicted of a crime, you didn't go to prison. They they didn't have detention centers where they kept people for 20 to 30 years. And so prisons had only three purposes. Uh, number one, it was to put someone temporarily, it was always temporary. It was either to coerce obedience uh, from a magistrate, or you were kept there until your trial date or kept there until your execution. Depending on your crime, you were either put in the army or you were you were killed. One of the two. There was no such thing prison; is a very modern form of penal uh, uh, punishment it, that, that didn't exist in the ancient world. You you either died or you went to the army. One of the two. And so, in this case, in this case, we know that the Lord is speaking about death because you, he says some of you will die. In verse ten, be faithful unto death. That's what they're facing. And he's saying, "Fear not. This is the devil doing it. Don't ever forget that we and we are persecuted. It's the devil who's behind it." It's very easy to say, "Look at how horrible these people are." As I was outlining some of those stories earlier, it is the devil who is working through his people to bring about this persecution and hostility. They're under they're under the spell of the Satan. They're 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 blinded. They're they're they're. Following the prince of the power of the air. It's a spiritual battle. That's why the Bible says, Pray for your enemies. If we didn't know Christ, we would be doing the same thing. These people are agents of Satan. And the devil is doing this, what? Because he wants to crush the church. He wants to silence our witness. He wants to destroy us. But Jesus says, Be faithful even unto death. The important thing is this He says, It's going to be about 10 days. Now, Revelation is a book of numbers, right? Numbers are symbolic. It doesn't mean 10 literal days. It just simply means that this is going to be an extended period of time, but a period of time that will come to an end. That's what 10 means. You can see this in the book of Daniel, where it's used similarly, particularly in chapter 1. And for the early Christians, it was an extended period of time. It wasn't until 313, when Constantine legalized Christianity But for up until 313, Christians suffered incredibly. Remember something, brothers and sisters. This ultimately is something that we all will face one day in one way or another. Now, we haven't yielded to the point of death or imprisonment here in America. But that may not always be the case. I've said this time and time again. There are forces in this country that would love nothing more than to criminalize Christianity. There are forces in this country, in our legal system, that would love nothing more to do than to silence us and to pressure us into submission and to shutting up. But the Lord hasn't given them the power to do so yet. But the day may come. And if that day comes, and we shouldn't wish for it to come. I always see people say, oh, we need persecution. No, we don't. Don't wish for something that you don't want. When it's God's time, he will send it, and when he does, he will give you the grace to survive it. But don't wish for it, and don't look for it. Smyrna would indeed go through a terrible trial, and at the apex of that was the martyrdom of Polycarp, and I'm going to give you this story. Who was Polycarp? Polycarp was John the Apostle's protege. He was, his, he was the man that John was shaping to take over the ministry when he was long gone. John's in Patmos right now and he's delivering this letter and the, the pastor, the man who would have been leading the church in John's absence would have been Polycarp. Polycarp would have actually received this in his hands directly and have read this. Now, Polycarp would have been a young man. This would have been around year 95. But about 50 years later, Polycarp would indeed suffer death himself. It was one of the most interesting testimonies of martyrdom. He was arrested by Roman authorities at the age of 86 years old, being the bishop of the Church of Smyrna. And he was reported to authorities by haters of Christianity. It was particularly a seven-year-old girl who reported him to the authorities. Get that, an 86-year-old man is reported to authorities by a seven-year-old girl who turns him in. Don't ever sleep on the seven-year-old girl. <laughs> After being arrested, a guard feeling sorry for him as they were transporting him to Rome, said, why don't you just sacrifice to Caesar and get it over with? Why should a man your age die? Polycarp's response was, never. Finally, he's brought to the stadium and he's offered a chance to curse Jesus and profess Caesar as Lord. And his response is, and I quote, 86 years have I served Christ and he's never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Polycarp was brought to the stake. They, they were going to burn. me. Well, actually, they said, we're going to throw you to the wild beasts if you don't. He goes, throw me to the wild beasts. What do I care? And he says, oh, since you seem so light, think so light of the wild beasts, we'll burn you at the stake. He says, he went willingly. He says, you don't even have to bind me. I will willingly die. And, that, and, and, and just to show you, historically speaking, this is all from Eusebius, that the Jews, remember I talked about the Jews, how their hostility and hatred, they were the first to run with the wood to the pile. In fact, it was the Sabbath day, and they were beating the pagans in terms of carrying the wood to the pile to burn polycarp at the stake. Well, he burned to death and he never cursed God and gave up his spirit to the Lord. But Jesus makes a promise. Again, no threat in this one, just a promise. He says, Be faithful to death and I will give you the crown of life. This life is eternal life, it's the life that cannot be taken away. When Jesus says, don't fear those who can destroy the body, but fear the one who can destroy both the body and soul in hell. When you come to faith in Christ, no matter what they do to you physically in this world, is meaningless. Because they cannot take your soul. They cannot take the gift of eternal life that Jesus has given to us. That has been secured forever. And these Christians in Nigeria and North Korea know that. And that's why they stand firm in the day of adversity. Because they know you can kill the body, but you cannot take my soul. The body they may kill, his truth abideth still. And then the Lord goes on to say, who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The second death is referred to in the end of the book of Revelation. It's called the lake of fire. You see, you die a physical death. That's one death. But if you die in this world in your sins and you do not, have not placed your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and have been forgiven and cleansed and received the gift of eternal life, there is yet another death that awaits you. It's eternal death. It's called the second death. It's on Judgment Day when Christ will resurrect both the just and the unjust. And those who are without Christ in this world, their souls will be taken out of hell, reunited with their physical bodies. But it will not be for eternal life. It will be for eternal death. And they will be cast into the lake. A fire will they will burn forever and their torment will go up in smoke forever and ever and ever with Satan, the false prophet, and the beast. Let this be known that if you stay faithful to the end, Christ is saying the second death won't touch you. Faithfulness is what matters. Staying committed to Christ to the end. You want to hear something interesting as we conclude? The church of Ephesus, by the time you get to the Middle Ages, no longer has a Christian witness. To this day, you can't find much of Christianity in Ephesus. Smyrna, to this day, still has a large Christian population. Smyrna still has a witness. It never lost its witness. Christ kept that church all through the church age. That's something to be said. So we conclude today with this church, and we say there are many churches around the world just like Smyrna. They're suffering unimaginable horrors, as I mentioned before. They're persecuted. Uh, Outwardly, they seem poor and dejected and hopeless, but yet Christ says they are rich. God has blessed them. What are the two takeaways from this? Number one, we need to be more conscious and aware of the needs of of our brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering Christ. Do not put your head in the sand. Subscribe to Voice of Martyrs or Open Doors USA. Go on the Christian Post and read about what's going on. And just don't read about it and say, oh, how horrible it is. Get on your hands and knees and make deliberate prayers for the individuals who are mentioned in these stories. These are not stories for your entertainment. This is to share with us so that we can be engaged as Christians praying for our brothers and sisters who are suffering. Not only that, but contribute to them. Contribute to ministries like Voice of Martyrs or Open Doors USA. Help support ministries that are supporting people on the ground in their suffering. I think this is something we need to do and we must do. You now it's interesting, Paul, was, Paul Fry was saying to me uh, a couple weeks ago, when we were talking about the new building, he said, I can't imagine spending all that money going to a new building when there's churches like we just saw up on the screen that are burned to the ground and our brothers and sisters are suffering around the world, unimaginable horrors. It almost seems like there's something wrong with that. I thank you, Pastor Paul, for sharing that. The second takeaway from we have to take from today is instead of asking ourselves, why are they being persecuted? Why, do they, why are they suffering so much? The real question we need to be asked, like I said earlier, is why aren't we suffering more for Christ? John 15, 18 says this, If the world hates you, know it's hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world will love you as its own, but because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. So I think that what the... What we're seeing here and the connection that's being made is if you're following Jesus and you're living like Jesus and you're preaching like Jesus and you're, 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 your life is, is, is reflecting Jesus, then people are going to hate you. You're not going to be popular. Christians that are popular, that, that's just, there's something wrong there. What did Jesus say? Woe to you in Luke 6.26 when men speak well of you. Woe to you when men speak well of you. So they spoke of the false prophets in Israel. There are a lot of Christian pastors who are celebrity pastors who have TV shows and and they they hang with the rich and famous in Hollywood and they have big ministries and and people speak well of them and they're popular and everybody loves them. Woe to you. If you are following Jesus and you're living like Jesus, people are not going to like you. Let's just leave it that simple you're not going to be popular, you're not going to have a lot of friends. But if you want friends and you want to be popular, then don't follow Jesus. James told us you know, in James 4, he who's friends with the world makes himself an enemy of God. So you either want God on your side or you want the world on your side. Make a choice. Choose this day whom you serve. Second Timothy 3.12 says, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus May be persecuted? No, that's a mystery. Will be persecuted? You will be. It's a certainty. It's a it's a definitive answer. Are we compromising? Do we do we cower? Are we ashamed of Christ and the gospel? Are we ashamed of Christ and the gospel? Paul said this, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. You may be ashamed of yourself. You could be ashamed of your sins but don't ever be afraid or ashamed of Christ and his gospel. He gives a warning to us. In Luke 9, 23 through 26, he says, if anyone would come after me, this is, this is what it means to be a disciple, to follow Jesus. You've got to deny yourself. Take up your cross daily and follow me whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. You get it? That's Christianity. Following Christ means you're willing to pick up your cross and die to the things of this world. If you're trying to save your life and try to you know, uh, become, you know, ingratiate yourself to the world and be accepted by the world, you're going to lose your life. But if you just let go and say whatever happens, happens, you save your life well, what is a profit of man if he gains the whole world but forfeits himself? And here it is, here's the clincher, verse 26, "Whoever's ashamed of me and my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and his holy angels." All that we will be faithful. I don't know what form of persecution we will. We experience persecution here. It's more on the level of marginalization, ostracization, you know, humiliation, people making fun of us, stereotyping, vilification, but we have not yet suffered to the point of death. We've not yet suffered imprisonment. So whatever insults or mockery or chuckles that you experience, do so with joy. If Peter and John could walk out of the Sanhedrin rejoicing after getting beaten with the whips, rejoicing that they had the privilege of suffering for Christ, go back to Acts chapter 4 and read it, then we also ought to rejoice for whatever insults are hurled to us, whatever mockery. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters. You're blessed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this um, word today. I thank you for your message to the churches. And Lord, I pray specifically today for the mothers in these churches that are suffering today. I pray for the mothers in Nigeria, the mothers whose little girls have been kidnapped by Boko Haram and have been forced into, into slavery, who've been forced to be marry men three times their age and to become uh, Islamic converts and to bear children Uh, Under this horrible persecution, they're suffering. I pray, dear God, for the mothers who are suffering in places like North Korea, where their own children have turned them into the authorities. I pray for the mothers, oh Lord God, who are weeping over the death of their children, who have suffered paid the ultimate cost for following you. I pray for the mothers, O Lord, who perish themselves, O Lord, or who will face death because they live in a country where laws prohibit the women from becoming a different religion than their husband, but they are bold enough to stand firm, to stand firm on your faith, and they're in prison, and they will suffer, and they will die for you, O Lord. I pray for those mothers who are bereft of their children, who are are alone in prison. Be with them today, O Lord Jesus. Be with them. May they know your comfort. May they know these words that they are rich, that they are blessed. And help us to remember them this day. In Christ's name, amen. Please stand as we sing once again. James 1, we read, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Human words that I don't want to describe because it would be too graphic uh, in the past two months. Mothers who've lost their children, their husbands, who've, lost, who've been defiled, all kinds of... Horrible wickedness. And yet we pray for them as well because today their day is not a happy day. It's a day of great grief and and sorrow. Thank you, Brother Rick, for the Lord put on your heart to go there. We're going to be praying for you in a couple of weeks. But today we're going to be praying and saying farewell. Um, It's goodbye to um, the...